If you will, open your Bibles now to John chapter 5 and verse 16. John chapter 5 and verse 16. This morning we're going to talk about resurrection is coming. And the passage that Brother David just read for us I think will be very helpful for us as we continue through this. But I want to begin by pointing out as a way of introduction that the work of Jesus continues while the opposition grows. I don't know about you, but at least for me, as I read through this section of Scripture, I see a great groundswell of opposition rising against our Lord. And for me, it even appears to be very difficult to imagine why the Son of God comes and there are people who are now opposed to Him. But John reveals how that many people were prejudiced. They had their minds made up. If they were a Sadducee, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead and they couldn't accept what Jesus was saying. The Pharisees were so wedded to their traditions that they were refusing to be able to see what Jesus was teaching of regarding the Sabbath. For that reason, they were angry and they were frustrated. But yet Jesus provided a message of hope. For him, the message was, I have come to seek and save the lost. For him, he was looking forward to a time in which those who were righteous could enjoy an eternal home with him in heaven. Here's what we want to do this morning. We're going to go through this section of Scripture. We want to go from verses 16 through 47, and we want to look, first of all, at the controversy continues. Last week, as we studied about the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, we recognized that there was an opposition that arose. It continues. Number two, we want to look at the claim that Christ will make. And then the uh, culmination of that, how that developed and what it meant by saying that he was the Son of God. And finally, the corroboration of it, the proof, if you will. Let's begin, first of all, by looking at verses 16 through 18. And we'll read this section, and he says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. The Jews therefore sought to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, the truth is, is if you think about the Sabbath, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand the work that God was doing. They didn't understand that God works and Jesus continues to work. And that's different from their daily labor. For instance, I want you to listen to Matthew 12, verse 5. While Jesus' disciples were walking through the grain fields, they were uh, taking grain and putting it in their hands and eating some of that grain. And they were criticized by the Pharisees, by saying that, you know, you're working up grain. And Jesus' response to them was very plain and very clear. Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath but are blameless? 
the question comes up, when those priests carry out their activities, what they're doing, are they violating the Sabbath? No, they're blameless because they're doing God's work. They're not out working for themselves. They're not out caring about some sort of profitable enterprise. They're working for God. And you've got to recognize the distinction between that. Second of all, you've got to realize that Jesus, as the Creator, upholds all things and continues to do so. Listen to Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. Let me ask you a question. Does God still provide the sunshine and the rain? Does He continue to provide the air that we breathe and all the things that we... Well, sure He does. Did He do that on the Sabbath day? Of course. Did God hear prayers on the Sabbath day? Of course He did. You see, there's the problem is they see this only as a burden to be placed upon man rather than why God gave it. God gave the Sabbath day for man's benefit, to give him a day of rest. And yet you find out that God does not need rest. God is not wearied. Isaiah 40, 28, Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord... The creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God doesn't get tired. And so Jesus says, my father has been working until now and I have been working. The work that he was doing was a spiritual work. So you begin by this controversy. It's continuing. But I want you to see how it dovetails into the next issue. And that controversy with regards to who he is and what he did. Beginning with verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater things than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom He wills. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that He should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, as you explore this, you realize that they turned or they pivoted, if you will, from their claim that Jesus broke the Sabbath now to what to them is a greater sin, and that is claiming to be equal with God. When Jesus said, God is my Father, they said, now you are claiming to be equal with God. But is that true? Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 30 would say, I and my Father are one. Verse 33, he said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. When Jesus would say, I and the Father are one, we're of one nature, we're one essence. 
were the same. When Jesus claimed that ability, that produced a real problem. John 14, verse 9. When Philip asked Lord to show him the Father, he said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen the Father, or seen me, has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Philippians 2, verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. You see, the controversy has continued, and now Jesus has made a claim that he is equal with God. But Jesus also claimed that the Father planned the work and that he himself was carrying that out. We're one in our works as well. He also claimed that there would be greater works that they would see and would marvel them. You know what that greater work is going to be? The resurrection of the dead. Or when you go to Acts 2 and listen to that sermon that Peter preached, he said, This Jesus God raised up of which we're all witnesses. Chapter 10, verse 40, Him God raised up the third day and showed Him openly. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, And God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by His power. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, Knowing that He who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up, or will also raise up with Jesus and will present us with you. What you understand is, is that the greater works that He's showing is not only would God raise Jesus, but he would also raise them as well. But in Jesus making this claim, he also makes it very plain. The work that God gave him to do involved judgment. Judging. Looking at the lives of everyone and deciding whether or not they go to be with God the Father, enjoy eternal life, or whether they are condemned. Acts 17, verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, God has said, this is my son, he will be your judge. Now you've got to look at the culmination of this claim. What was Jesus trying to lead into? Let's look beginning with verse 24 going through verse 30. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. Now, don't skip that first important verse there. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, 
and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgments are righteousness because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The focus here on the judgment requires that there be a death. When you think about what he is saying here, you think about there's going to be a judgment, but behind that's got to be a resurrection of the dead. What about all these people who are in the tombs? What about all these people who are in the graves? What will happen to them? Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed to demand to die once. And after this, the judgment. God expects there would be death, but then there's going to be that resurrection that's going to take place. As I study through this, I think there's a lot more in it than sometimes we often will grasp. In fact, I'd suggest to you that there are three different ideas of being raised up, or if you will, three different resurrections in this passage. The first one I told you not to miss as we were reading, verses 24 and 25. There is first this resurrection from dead works to life in God. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Notice you've been practicing dead works. He's talking about being raised up from a, a dead spiritually person to a live spiritual person. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He goes on in verses 4 through 6 to talk about how God raised us up. I know we're all familiar with Romans 6, verses 4 through 6. We were buried with him in baptism, likened to his death. We are then raised to walk in newness of life. That's what Jesus is talking about in the first part of this, how that people who have been dead in their trespasses, dead in their sins, are now raised to walk with the living God. But the second part of this is the anticipation of Jesus' own resurrection. Brother Caleb led us before the communion service this morning, and lo, in the grave he lay. And then the chorus that begins with the enthusiastic words, up from the grave he arose. Acts 2.24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it is not possible that he should be held by it. God raised him up. But then there's that third resurrection that's discussed in this passage, the one in verses 28 and 29. The one that says, Do not marvel, 
because the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. When Jesus returns again, there will be a great resurrection day. That's all discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Everybody who has ever lived on the face of this planet will be raised from the dead. Your mothers, your fathers, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, some of us who've seen those of us younger pass away, all of them will be coming out of their graves. Paul eloquently puts this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, that you sorrow not, or lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will in no wise or by no means precede those who are fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Paul would tell the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. And he will describe it in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Oh, there is this great resurrection that is coming forth and there is this promise, this claim, if you will, that is made by Christ that culminates in the resurrection of the dead. But now let's take the last part of it and that is the corroboration of it. Look with me at verse 31 to begin with. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. What? Did Jesus say that my witness is not true? That's not what he means. What he is saying here is he expects people to demand and look for a confirmation that what he said was true. You see, the Old Testament is very plain. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Jesus quotes that again in Matthew 18, verse 16. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You didn't take someone's word alone. You had to have corroboration. You had to have someone to come along and say, yes, that's what happened. In this passage, there are three witnesses. Look at them with me, if you will. The first one in verses 32 through 35. He said, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John. He is borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. 
called John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist say? John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What did John say? He said, There's one coming after me who is preferred before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to unlatch. He's higher than me. He is before me. Listen to John. John will tell you the claims that Christ made were true. But that wasn't the only proof. Look at verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. You think about just what we have studied over the past few weeks. Water to wine at Cana of Galilee. The raising of the nobleman's son. While Jesus was at Cana, the son was at Capernaum. You think about the healing of the man at the gate or at the pool of Bethesda. You think about all of the miracles that Jesus has performed. And he says, they themselves are a witness that I am from God. But the third one, and perhaps as we would say the icing on the cake, the one that was so uh, impressive was God's witness through the scriptures. Look with me beginning with verse 37. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. Stop right there for just a moment. The Father has done what? He's testified of me. Oh, I know that as we will study in our class this morning on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was the voice that came from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. I know that there were other instances as when Jesus was baptized. But oh, He's, he's thinking about the testimony of God through the Scriptures. How do I know that? He said, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So whatever testifying that God did to these people was not firsthand, but it was definitely through something. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. For He said, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Oh, there's so much that's there. The witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the miracles, and the witness of the scriptures. But now what do we draw from this? This passage here has some real important 
ideas. The healing at the man of the man at the pools of Bethesda did exactly what the Lord wanted it to do. It opened a door. It provided an opportunity to speak to these people and to address their needs even though they didn't realize their needs. The second thing that you observe is controversy is not always bad. Sometimes controversy is awful. But sometimes controversy brings together two ideas that are opposed to one another and you have to say, which one of these is right? Which one of them is wrong? 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. When Peter wrote 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But sanctifying your hearts, the Lord God, and being ready always to give a defense, an answer to everyone who asks the reason of hope that is within you. The Lord brought about a controversy here to teach them the truth that he was the Son of God. The third observation, which I think you need to walk away with, is the fact that Jesus is, by the divine appointment of the Father, going to be our judge, and that judgment will take place when the great resurrection of the dead occurs. In John 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Do you know what that really means? That means that every one of us here this morning will stand before God and God will judge us or Jesus will judge us on the basis of what he has said. When Paul wrote Timothy, young preacher, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in kingdom. When Jesus returns, He's going to be our judge. I want you to go ahead and open your song books now, if you will. Number 739. And I want you to look across the page at song number 740. If you look down to the chorus, there's some words there that I think are very valuable. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do? With me. I want you to think about what has been presented in this portion of God's Word. The claim that Jesus made either He is who He claimed to be or He is not. At this point, you are rendering a judgment. Is He the Son of God? Is He worthy of my service and my devotion and my obedience? But that's not the only judgment that will be made. Jesus himself will judge us. The resurrection is coming. Are you ready for it?
you're not a Christian, oh, we would love this morning to see you become one because you believe in Jesus, willing to repent of sins, confessing your faith, and be baptized. And we would love if there's a child of God who's struggling and uh, sinking under the weight of sin to be able to come back to our Father and to Jesus and say, I want to be faithful once again. Would you come while we stand and sing?